And um, as I was standing backstage, I was thinking about you guys moving uh, your venue. And um, I I think, you know, there's something transformative that happens when a creature changes its skin. And um, I really believe that as you shed the skin on the outside, that there's something that's going to be transformative that happens on the inside. And I hope you're ready for it. Um, But... I'm also privileged to be here on what was like a formal Sundays or something like that to go or something around there. So it's absolute privilege to be here. This church is amazing. Love Pastor Daryl. Love Pastor Denise. I just wanted to introduce you to two friends that I brought with me from Manurewa. Uh, they were on the worship team. So Malachi and Nema, uh, they came with us and that was cool. So I wish it was awesome. It's so good to be here, but I'm going to pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to come around your word. We thank you, Lord, that you're a good God, that you're living and active, Lord, in this place, Lord. And we thank you, God, that where you are, there's the power to change. And so right now, Lord God, we take a moment, Lord, just to step out of our week, step out, Lord God, of the hustle and bustle of our lives and just look at you. We turn our eyes upon Jesus. We stare full in your wonderful face. God, and we acknowledge, Lord, that as we see you, Lord God, that the things of this world grow strangely dim. We love you, Jesus. We came to look upon you today. We came to hear your voice. We came to listen for your heartbeat. We thank you for what you're doing in our lives and in this church. We bless you in Jesus' name. And we pray, Lord, for our nation in this time and season. We will rebuild. (laughs) We will heal. (laughs) In Jesus' name, amen. (laughs) Oh, man. We have undergone a national tragedy and we need to heal. (laughs) Oh, gee. Hey, listen, it's good to be here. I remember I was in um, Rome for the first time a couple of years ago. And um, the first time you go to Rome, a city like Rome, it's quite overwhelming. Um, The opulence, the art, the grandeur, the sheer amount of tourists. And you feel hypocritical because you walk around and you get so angry at all the tourists. You're like, why are there so many tourists there? And then you realize you can't think that because you're a tourist, right? So it's super hypocritical to think that. But I remember the first time I went and it was amazing. You're just walking down a street and you just walk into a random church. You go in and it's the the most beautiful church you've ever seen. Like every every uh, like surface, every covering is painted or sculptured. There's statues everywhere. It's utterly overwhelming. And like the heart of Roman Catholicism is St. Peter's Basilica. It's not actually in Rome. It's in the Vatican City, which I heard is a country in its own right. That's crazy. But anyway, and you walk up to the to St. Peter's Basilica, and just like the entryway is incredible. It's like. Um, You walk into this piazza, you're surrounded by like uh, statues on either side and the facade of it is immense. But the thing is, it's kind of distracted because it's so full of tourists that you're like sort of looking up, but sort of looking around because tourists are the most annoying people on earth, you know, taking photos, getting in the way of your photo, you know, it's very, you feel very ungracious. But anyway, and so I remember like watching, I really wanted to go into the Basilica. I was with my parents, I really wanted to go in, but the queue to get in was really ridiculous. Like, it way exceeded the log flume queue at Rainbow's End. It was the biggest queue I'd ever seen. Uh, And I was like, I'm not going to stand in this queue to get in. But I thought to myself, I actually did my research and I realized that the Basilica opens at 7 a.m., 7 a.m. on the morning, the next morning, and I thought to myself, no self-respecting tourist is going to get out of bed and go to the St. Peter's, Peter's Basilica at 7 a.m. So I thought, I'm going to do that. I'm going to get up. And so I got up, set my alarm the next day, 6.30 a.m., uh, and walked through the streets of Rome to St. Peter's Basilica, and it was honestly one of the most surreal experiences of my life. 
I got to the uh, church and there was no queue. I just sort of like waltzed up and waltzed in and went through this incredible church which has sculptures and statues that you only see in art history books. And I had an uninterrupted, unimpeded view of these things without numbers of people. It was a surreal experience. The only people there were like priests and nuns who were saying their morning mass. But I remember walking around the basilica and looking up and looking around and I almost felt overawed. Actually, I almost felt afraid because of the opulence and the grandeur of the place. And I looked around and I thought, God, where are you in this? Where are you in this? And I felt like the Holy Spirit say to me, Haley, I'm in the hearts of the men and women who are in this grand place simply serving. And I thought, isn't it interesting how religion always seeks to hide and cover up, but God so often is in the simplicity of a relationship. And you know, that's what this series is all about. Listen, we're not into church 2.0, we're into church 1.0. Because there have been thousands and thousands of years of men's thoughts, men's ideas, men's traditions, men's rituals that sometimes get in the way of us understanding what the church was really meant to be. See, the truth is a river is always at its most pure when it's closest to the source, right? It's the further that you get downstream that the impurities enter. And so every so often, it's good for us to go back to what the church was like in its infancy, what the church was like at the beginning, because friends, we're not trying to be church 2.0, we're trying to be church 1.0. We're trying to be like it was right in the beginning when it was closest to the source. And what we find is actually that church was quite simple. This is what it says in your notes, Acts 2, verse 42 to 47. It says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. Note that the miraculous was every day in the infancy of the church. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread again in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And it says that the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. See, these five verses give us a picture of the infancy, the birth of the early church. This is after Jesus has died, he's resurrected, he's ascended to heaven. Peter has preached on the day of Pentecost. 3,000 have been saved and the church has been birthed. And this is what the church looked like in its infancy. This is what the church looked like in the beginning. And we've been sort of breaking apart this scripture over the last couple of weeks. But the one I want to focus into today is where it says that they broke bread in each other's homes. They broke bread together together in their homes. They gave thanks with glad and sincere hearts. And what this passage is probably referring to is their traditional regular meal. They would break bread as family and have it together. Notice that bread and wine, maybe not for us, but they were traditional items that were always on the Middle Eastern table. But during this time of breaking bread, it says that they gave thanks. They paused to remember what Jesus had done for them on the cross. Now that 
phrase, breaking bread, is incredibly important. Because the moment that we see it, we remember an ordinance or something, a practice that Jesus gave us before he died that we would continue to do. You see, we call this practice of breaking bread today, we call that communion. And this is a practice that Jesus actually ordained for us to continue in. There are only two ordinances. You might have heard this word ordinances. It just means practices that Christ ordained that we celebrate in the Protestant church. One is communion. The second is water baptism. This is where Jesus ordains it in Luke 22, verse 13 to 20. It says, they left and found things just as Jesus has told them. So they prepared the Passover. Just gonna stop there. The communion meal has its roots in the Passover meal. And the reason that that's important is that you need to know that our Christianity, New Testament Christianity, is not different from Old Testament. It is not a separation. It's a continuation from. And so what Jesus is doing when he takes a Passover meal, he's saying, listen, I'm not doing something different. I'm doing the next revelation of a continuation from, okay? So it goes on to say this, when the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. This is like the last family meal that Jesus is celebrating before he goes to the cross to suffer and die. And he's saying, do this in remembrance of me. In other words, he's saying, after I go, after the crucifixion, after the event, continue doing this thing. Continue doing this practice of remembering me through the bread and the cup. And the early church did it. It says that they broke bread. And we continue to do this practice today, which I think is actually quite beautiful. But the ordinances are important. They're important for two two main reasons, the ordinances of baptism and communion. The first is this. They are communal acts of commitment. They are communal acts of commitment. In the early church, uh, Western philosophers who were mainly spoke in Latin began to refer to the ordinances by the word sacramentum, and that's where we get our word sacrament. Sometimes you hear the ordinances referred to as sacraments as well. And what a sacramentum was, get this, this is amazing, it was the oath of allegiance that someone would swear to their commanding officer before they entered in to the Roman army. I don't know if you've ever taken communion with this understanding before, but what we're doing when we're taking communion is we are swearing again an oath of allegiance to our commanding officer, Jesus. We're saying, Jesus, I'll fight for you. I'll follow you. I'll give my life for you even. It is an act of allegiance. But notice this, we don't just swear an oath to fight for, we also swear an oath to fight with. How many people know that the worst army in the world is an army filled with individuals? 
The Roman army was famed for its discipline and for its unity. You might have heard of the military maneuver where they did, where they interlocked shields so you couldn't get to the brother because I was standing in place. You gotta know today that when we take communion, you're not just swearing to fight for. Come on, someone. You're swearing to fight with. I'm going to look to my left and to my right and say, I swear to fight with you, to pray for you, to stand shoulder to shoulder with you as we advance the kingdom of God together. Come on, somebody. It's an oath of allegiance to fight for our commanding officer, Jesus, but also to fight with one another as we press on to kingdom come. It's a communal act of commitment. Secondly, the ordinances are this. They are a visual representation of our faith. Let me say it this way. Baptism and communion were like the original sermon illustrations. You know what a sermon illustration is. That's when, you know, Pastor Daryl and I get up on stage and we tell a funny story that has a very loose connection to the principle we're trying to talk to you about. (laughs) And you just give us grace, right? Because we all like stories. Communion and baptism, they were like the original They're like the OG sermon illustrations. They are sermonic pictures. They give us graphic and visual representations of the way to act out our faith. And so when we take the bread and the bread is broken, it visually represents the broken body of Jesus on the cross. And we eat that to say that we're accepting his sacrifice. When we take the cup, we see wine like Jesus' blood poured out and we drink that to remember, oh, come on, somebody, I'm completely covered. I'm completely clean. But the incredible thing is, is that in both the Old and the New Testament, this is amazing, the symbol in some way they considered participating in the reality which it represented. So, for example, with baptism, when we go under the waters, What's happening is we are identifying with the death of Christ. That's why you go under the water. But the New Testament and the Old Testament didn't think of this as just a symbol. They thought of it as participation in your salvation reality. So that when you were going under the water, you were participating in the death of Christ. In other words, my old life is passing away and I'm coming up as a new creation. See, if we just think of communion as a symbol, we are drastically underestimating its importance. It is not just symbolizing. When we take the bread and the cup, in some way, we are again participating in our salvation reality. We are covered. We are saved. We are set free completely by the blood of Jesus. That's one of the reasons it's important that we don't stop doing it. Because in some way, the symbol represents the reality. It can be a means of grace to us. So what do we do when we take communion? Well, firstly, the first thing that we do when we take communion is that we look back. We look back. This is what it says in 1 Corinthians 11, 23 to 24. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul gives us a set of steps on why we do communion. And this is what it says in verse 23 to 24. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
So the first thing we do when we take communion is that we look back and we remember. Why is remembrance important? Well, actually, it's incredible. If you read the Old Testament, particularly in the Psalms, but also in Deuteronomy and some of the books of the law, you will notice that there is a reoccurring principle. Again and again, Old Testament authors will say something like, the people of Israel forgot and then they disobeyed. The people of Israel forgot and then they disobeyed. In fact, this is what it says in Deuteronomy. It says, but that, uh, this is Deuteronomy 8 verse 11, but that is the time to be careful. Beware that in your plenty, get this, you do not forget the Lord your God and disobey his commands, regulations, and decrees that I am giving you today. The Old Testament seems to suggest that forgetting was almost a valid reason for disobedience. And that shocks me. Because one day when I have children and I give them an instruction to do some chores and I come back home and they tell me that they haven't done it because they've forgotten, I'm going to be deeply unhappy. I'm going to say something like, well, why didn't you do something to ensure that you didn't forget? Why didn't you put a reminder in your phone? Why didn't you write a note on the fridge? Why didn't you even write something on your hand? I don't care. Why didn't you put something in place to ensure that you remembered? Why didn't you do something in remembrance of the thing that I did not want you to forget? That's why communion is so important. Jesus institutes a practice of remembrance so that we do not forget and disobey. Could it be that remembrance actually is a way to avoid disobedience? So firstly, we look back and remember. Secondly, we look forward. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. It says, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. See, the act of communion doesn't just look back. It looks forward to the bright hope of the coming kingship, the lordship, the kingdom of Jesus. It looks forward to the time where every tear will be wiped away, every sickness will be healed. It looks forward to the coming of Jesus. So we look back and remember, we look forward and hope. Thirdly, we look within. We look within and we repent. See, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty eight 28 says this, everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. In the preceding verse, it has told us to make sure that we take communion in a worthy manner. Notice that it does not say take communion because you are worthy. Because none of us will ever stand in that place of worth for that sacrifice. It doesn't tell us to take communion because we're worthy, but it does say to take communion in a worthy manner. What does that mean? Well, think about it like this. Has anyone ever done a fake laugh? <laughs> Beautiful, thank you for that. <laughs> Stunning. I've definitely done a few in church, I'm not going to lie. Pastor Boyd's jokes. No, just joking, I'm not going to burn my past like that. Don't tell him that I said that. Don't put that on the recording. Bleep that out. 
Has anyone offered a compliment that perhaps they didn't mean? Oh, how about this one? Have you made a commitment that you didn't really want to keep? It feels hollow, doesn't it? It feels false. There's no integrity there because your actions aren't lining up with your heart commitment. Can we take that principle into communion? If we understand that what we're doing when we take communion is making an oath of allegiance to our King Jesus, are we making that action with integrity? Does that line up with where our heart is at? That's what it says when it says examine yourself. It's saying ensure that what's happening on the inside is matching what's happening on the outside. Examine yourself. And finally today, this is what it says. It says after we look forward, after we look back, after we look within, we look around. 1 Corinthians 11.33. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, I bet you've never seen this before. When you gather to eat, Make sure it says that you eat all together. I need you to know today that the place that Jesus initiated communion, this practice that we were supposed to keep, it was a family meal. Communion is actually the Greek word koinonia. It means fellowship. It means social intercourse. In other words, this has to be something that we do together. I am happy for you if you are taking your communion in your prayer closet. I'm happy that you're doing that. I'm happy if you do it in your devotional time just for you and God. But know this, communion was designed to be a thing that pushed us back into relationship with one another. And isn't that just the story of the gospel? Have you even noticed that Jesus reconciles us, us to him to ensure that we are then reconciled to one another. Communion needs to be taken together. Let me tell you why by finishing with this story. There's a great book I've been reading. It's called How People Grow, and I recommend it. It's on our reading list at ELC. Uh, It's a great book. But one of the stories that the guys tell in there, they're Christian psychologists, and they work with people through a lot of traumatic events, and they tell this story about a pastor who had a problem with with addiction, And he had tried and grappled for many years to get over it himself, but he just couldn't, and he was very disillusioned about it. And so they invited him to this group, uh, a support group, and they, they told how he would come to the group every day and listen to all the other people share, and he'd offer them encouragement. He'd do like the pastoral thing, offer them encouragement, offer them support, but he'd never share himself. One morning, he was missing from the group, and so the psychologist went to find him, And after he did, he brought him back to the group. The pastor didn't want to come, and it was because he'd had a slip-up the night before. He didn't want to face anyone. And he came and he sat in the group, and the psychologist began to prompt him to try and share. And he didn't want to, obviously. But after a while, with his head down, he began to share his story. His years of isolation and disappointment and disillusionment as he tried repeatedly to get himself out of this struggle and this addiction. As he tried repeatedly to tell himself the things that he'd been telling people. As he struggled with the feelings of hypocrisy as he stood in front of a congregation, unable to do the very things that he asked them to do. And as he shared the story, he kept his head down. He couldn't look around. And the counselor began to tell him to put his head up, to look around at the other members of the group. And after a while, he did. 
And in their eyes, he found that which he did not expect to find. He thought he was going to be met with judgment. He thought he was going to be met with accusation. But instead, what he found was acceptance, forgiveness, love, grace. And the power of his addiction was broken that day. You need to know this. God has set us up as his representatives on earth. And sometimes that means that we represent him not just to the world, but to each other. And so when we take communion, which represents the love of Jesus, the mercy of Jesus, the grace of Jesus, We look back and we remember. We look forward and we hope. We look within and we repent. And then we look around and we see Jesus' love, Jesus' grace, Jesus' mercy in the eyes of one another. I could take it by myself and know but I could also take it with one another and see. I'm loved. I'm forgiven. I'm free. I'm accepted. See, the thing is, is that communion is a family meal. Because sometimes it's not just enough to know it. Sometimes we have to see it. With every eye closed and every head bowed, I'm about to give an opportunity for people who don't know Jesus to come to know him. And I've led in that way for a reason. See, maybe you came in here today and you're isolated. You feel isolated from one another. Maybe you feel like you don't have anyone to offer you that love, that acceptance, that grace. Maybe you feel alone. I need you to know today that our reconciliation with one another begins with us being reconciled to Jesus. See, when Adam and Eve fell in the garden, it didn't just disrupt their relationship with God. It disrupted their relationship with each other. And human beings have been living out of that disruption ever since. <laughs> we miscommunicate, we miss, we get ourselves alone and isolated. And it's because the beginning of our reconciliation with one another begins with us being reconciled to Jesus. And so perhaps today you've never made that decision to give your life for Him. And I sense that there are people today who've been coming along and you've been debating about this decision. And I don't wanna challenge you, I wanna gently encourage you that perhaps today could be your day. The truth is this, you were created for life. You were created for peace. You were created for fullness. You were created for wholeness. You were created for eternity. You were created for Jesus. All those things in your heart that you have hungered after, friend, that is what you were created for. But it begins, friend, it begins by making a decision 
to turn from your sin, to turn from your way of doing things and to make Jesus the Lord of your life. So if that's you in a moment, I'm gonna count to three. And at the end of that, if that's you, I just ask that you raise your hand. One, God loves you. Two, he's speaking to you right now. Three, if that's you, raise your hand. You're saying, I give my life to Jesus today. I wanna give my life to Jesus today. I'm submitting my life to Jesus today. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Church, repeat this prayer after me. Say, dear Jesus, I confess I'm a sinner in need of a savior. Today, I give my life to you, holding nothing back. I turn from sin and follow you. Thanks to you, I'm free. In Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen and amen. Come on, church, let's big round of applause. Pastor Haley Barrett.